Glad to have you back with us at Noggin Notes, and this is podcast episode 27. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm your host as always, and episode 27 is also part two of a series of three parts on understanding and exploring intellectual disabilities. Our guest and interviewee is Heather Milligan, who is a practicum student with North Central University going through their marriage and family therapy program, and she's doing that practicum internship at Zephyr Wellness. What that basically means is that she's a clinician treating people face-to-face, accumulating enough hours so that she can graduate with her master's degree, and we supervise her. Jesse Lott, who has been on this program, is our clinical supervisor at Zephyr, and she is under his careful, watchful eye while she grows and develops as a clinician. She's sharing her wisdom and experience with us in this podcast because she spent many, many years working with the intellectually disabled population, and we're glad to have her. So we're going to get into that, but we want to thank the folks at Mind Organization for allowing us to speak out and support their cause. If you're in the UK and you're listening to this, we Thank you, and we hope that you participated in 24 Hours of House Music for Better Mental Health, which just concluded yesterday. And we hope that they raised a lot of money because that's a good cause and a good organization. Check out mind.org.uk. They will always readily accept your money as they promote better mental wellness across Europe. Without further delay, we bring to you part two in a series of three on understanding intellectual disabilities with guest Heather Milligan. This is Noggin Notes Podcast number 27. Welcome back to the Noggin Notes Podcast. I'm Jake, and I'm joined again by Heather Milligan, who's a marriage and family therapy practicum student, and she's also uh, spent a lot of time gaining experience in the world of intellectual disabilities and folks with intellectual disabilities. We covered in part one that intellectual disability is... Uh, the formerly known as mental retardation, and we covered what a definition is of intellectual disability and compared and contrasted with mental illness. What we wanted to pick up in this part is um, what is the what is the treatment? What is the what, what do we do with folks who are struggling with intellectual disabilities, specifically when they're young, and then uh, how do how do we how do we work with them? through adulthood because you know chiefly in in uh, at least in America when you turn 18 you become a legal uh, adult unto oneself autonomous and fully functioning and you can make your own decisions and so that gets complicated for folks who are struggling to uh, put their lives together or navigate life uh, simply because they have a structural deficiency in their brain or they lack executive functioning so t- tell me a little bit we'll just I'll just let you talk loosely about that process and what that's like identifying people and so forth so individuals with intellectual disability are born into a system of treatment professionals often from a very young age um, as soon as their intellectual disability is really recognizable um, how old can that be that can be birth, you know, if a person is born with something like Down syndrome. You could detect that in utero these days. Okay. That, uh, so I've heard there's, okay. there are certain markers physiologically um, with, uh, with the, the digits, you know, on the hands. Nobody on the radio can see me putting it in my hands, but I'm doing that. Uh, but th- there are things that I've been told that you can, you can identify through ultrasound. Uh, so even before birth, uh, from what I gather, I don't know which those they are. I yeah. just know they exist. My, my understanding, too, is that they do um, 
genetic testing on on mothers who might be considered high risk. Right, right. Um, and certainly you can, you know, screen out too um, before even conception what your risk for conceiving a child with particular disabilities might be. Correct. Now you've got, you got 15 years under your belt of working with this population and uh, 10 of those professionally. What's the oldest that you've seen somebody identified and then uh, put into a system of care? Probably about eight. Um, because still pretty young. Yeah, still pretty young. I'd say more commonly it's like three, um, and that's when early intervention services is. There's a team of clinical psychologists who are able to assess the child and the family, um, and determine what impairment exists. Now, I've heard things you know called brain scans and and uh, and uh, functional MRIs and stuff like that. What what do these psychologists do uh, traditionally? Because I know those things that I just mentioned are very very expensive and very hard to find. They're not quite as common as people would like to believe that they are. So what what do they do to to screen an, a child or a family to determine this this uh, status or this this identification? I think it comes back to the really commonly known IQ test. Okay. Um, Usually people with intellectual disabilities score somewhere between 70 to 75 on an IQ test. And um, that's being able to, you know, orient yourself spatially and time, language skills, um, and other adaptive skills. Okay. And then what happens after that? They say, uh, what, we've got some resources here, we can treat your kid, we can do what? What happens? Yeah, I... There's there's many avenues in which this can go, and I think that it's all family and person dependent. Um, depending on what what resources the family already naturally has and what supplement they might need, and that might be something from um, early education. You know, helping a family get child into school at three, as opposed to you know the typical age of five for kindergarten. Um, it might be bringing a therapist in or a family therapist, um, other behavioral resources that can help the family really thrive because these individuals and children born with intellectual disability by nature are going to require more support than, than your typical family. Sure. That makes, that makes complete sense. Is there a, a general consensus of the treatment and supports that are designed to support people living with intellectual disabilities? So, throughout the lifespan, um, people with intellectual disabilities, they are supported by teacher's aides in school, and um, they have special education classrooms and IEPs, um, indiv- individual education plans and Thank things. Thank you for clearing up the alphabet soup. Yes, um, to support them in and make them as successful as possible in what we would consider like typical environments. Beyond that, I think that there is a really heavy emphasis on behavioral modification and um, determining what what a person's behavior is telling us about them, what what happens before the behavior, what the behavior is, and what function it might serve. Um, some functions, I think, we can we can extend this to any one of us, you know. Um, maybe I get angry at my mom or dad, and they give me what I want, and so the function of my behavior then becomes to get what you want. To get what I want. Okay. Um. So individuals with intellectual disabilities 
my experience says that they're simplified to that type of breakdown analysis yes application um, right um people posit- on the, people on the radio can't see us sorry gesticulating and heather's like help me out here <laughs> um that sort of like cause, cause and effect event. cause yeah. and effect yeah yeah and that's and that seems incredibly shallow to somebody like me who works with people and has repeatedly stated in you know not only this podcast but YouTube videos and client sessions and seminars that I've given that I I see through outward behaviors and into the inner soul of a human being. I believe people are just fundamentally deeper than their behaviors. So to hear you say that we evaluate individuals, any individuals, let alone people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, on a basis of what is their behavior and what is the function of their behavior, and then we can modify that. Sounds incredibly, you like you said, simplistic, but also shallow and almost um, a, makes makes it a disservice to the human being doing the behaviors. Certainly, I think that you know behaviorism it, it has a place in in our field. No doubt, no doubt. Yes, it does, um, but it's not it's not whole, and it's not necessarily um, conveying that dignity or respect that every single person deserves. And so to simplify treatment to behaviorism um, is is not respectful of the person. It's, it's a little disingenuous, too, to the, uh, to the spirit behind whatever's going on. We've talked on this podcast about content versus process content mm-hmm. being the stuff that's coming out of my mouth and process being how I feel about it if all I wanted to do is modify the language which would be behaviorism I would just give myself new vocabulary words but it wouldn't make me any less angry or or excited or or happy about saying those things and I think that when I hear what you're saying about you know behavior modification and and distilling a human being into observable modifiable behaviors what we've done is we've essentially boxed them up labeled them and almost made them non-human we've forgotten that there's there's a an individual beneath that surface and while it's great for treatment planning and measuring outcomes it doesn't necessarily like you say honor their dignity yeah, and I think actually I found my words now. Um, we we do, oh good, it's been a while. <laughs> we do a great disservice to people by simplifying them to that model of treatment, um, and unfortunately, it's it's so easily understood and it's so widely implemented that that's there are barriers that we need to break down within the field of treatment providers for persons with intellectual disability. So. Here's where I get to play, you know, the, the, the problem solver, but also do, give you a dose of cynicism. That seems like incredibly hard work to yeah, so. go beyond something that's so easy to notice, document, log, and track to something that's uh, maybe a moving target that's much more ethereal and deeper and possibly never-ending if we talk about the unlimited power of the human psyche or the human mind. Where do we, or where do you see that change happening? And how, if it requires so much more effort in what is presumably a, a field limited you know, by resources and access to, to money and that sort of thing? I, I endeavor to educate my staff on the cognitive component of um, and beyond cognition, like 
emotion and really, really helping um, people see, employees see our clients or the clientele out there that lives with intellectual disability as people with feelings and um, they're deeper than their outward behavior. Well, they they respond better. I mean, all my clients respond a lot better when I validate their human experience instead of just saying, let's fix your stated problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, they tend to get more buy-in and they, there's, they're not, there's not as much combativeness. There's not as much resistance when we, when we yield and we lean into the person as opposed to simply looking at some treatment plan with check boxes. So I'm guessing that your staff are probably seeing that too, and it makes it very easy for them to buy into what you're selling. Yeah, I, I really try to embody a culture of, you know, we make um, we we make accidents. We don't they're not called on purposes. You know? <laughs> and so and I know that that sounds so silly and elementary, but I think that if we can look at every intense behavior that we experience within the population that I support um, that you know we can we can really appeal to our clients and their experience and yeah. we can better help them that's awesome in part three which is going to come up after this one which is part two we're going to tackle the rest of the lifespan we've talked a little bit about treatment interventions we've talked a little bit about what intellectual disabilities are uh, and and then in the next installment We'll talk about what people do as they move into adulthood and uh, how care continues. And uh, we'll talk about the, the transition from childhood to adulthood. So thank you for joining in the Noggin Notes podcast. Uh, again, my name is Jake Wiskirchen. I will continue being your host. If you want to shoot us a question for either me or for Heather on this topic, info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com are those avenues. You can also check out ZephyrWellness.org, and if you're listening to this podcast and you don't yet have the Noggin Notes app, please download it, and feel free to give us a rating and review on iTunes, because that is apparently, or so they say, how other people get more access to this, and of course we want this information into the hands of the many. On behalf of the Zephyr Wellness team and the Noggin Notes crew, I appreciate your listening, and we'll check you next time. Thanks, and we wish you good mental health.